This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome at 5pm in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, of course, over in New York. Alex, quite the day. If anybody thought that 2022 was done with us, that you could close your book, walk away, go on holiday, go to the bar, enjoy a party maybe, you were wrong because this year is not done with us just yet. The Bank of Japan, the latest surprise that we get, uh, and it's a significant one, and it's having a fairly meaningful impact on the market. So dollar yen uh, up by uh, or, or down by 4.24% today. Uh, you've seen a consistent move really on all the yen crosses. You've got European banks trading very strongly on the back of this. Commerzbank, for instance, up by 9% today. Deutsche Bank uh, up by nearly 6%. Uh, you've got bond markets selling off really across the piece today. Uh, Australians 10-year down by, sorry, up by uh, nearly 20 basis points. Uh, the US 30-year up by 10 basis points. European bond markets have also been moving sharply higher. But, Alex, in some ways, this has been a very controlled reaction to what I think is a long-term, potentially very profound move, a potential a pivot. I think we can call this a pivot. I have to wonder a couple things. You know, one is it the fact that it was basically sterilized. Uh, Kuroda and his presser also announced that the BOJ is going to be buying JGBs. So was a sterilization part of it? Um, or is this going to be like a slow trickle? Like over the next few weeks, when we digest the news, you'll see more of a, say, a potentially repatriation into Japan and then forced selling of other assets. And that we're just not seeing that the next day. We should probably explain what has happened here. Yeah. Um, as you say, um, a, a fairly kind of mixed reading uh, on what we got from the BOJ. Um, so the Bank of Japan increased the upper bound on which in, in, in which JGBs can trade by 25 basis points, um, allowing effectively yields to kind of push up to that level. Now, they didn't today. But it means that the basically we're going from sort of 25 basis points up to 50 basis points. And at some point, there's going to be a test of that. It could come when the inflation data uh, comes through in the next few days. That's what the market is reacting to. But, but the kind of significance of this is that this is the large major central bank mm-hmm. to kind of be holding out with the kind of QE style policies that have dominated the last 10 years. Yeah. And, we've been, and it's a typical short JGBs is the Wittermaker trade, right? Like you keep doing it and it keeps not working and this was the last 24 hours where if you were short JGBs you actually got paid finally like it actually worked there was like a handful of firms that were still betting and shorting um, and they got paid out nicely and some of them were actually we'll uh, talk about this later on in the program uh, keeping with those short JGB trades as well um, the question is inflation maybe at 3.4 percent uh, for Japan um, but is that really demand led inflation or is this just the when the yen got so yep. weak? that it just really wound up rising inflation. So they had to kind of act uh, to tampen down, um, to find a bottom, find some support for the yen. And, and you've had a super hawkish ECB and a super hawkish Bank of Japan, uh, sorry, a super hawkish Fed as well to contend with. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned some of those that are that have been positioned for this. Blue Bay has been one such firm. Its CIO is Mark Dowding. He caught up with Alex and I a little earlier. 
I would say that the Bank of Japan is going to be pretty content with uh, how markets have moved today. Uh, it was a pretty orderly uh, reaction. Um, obviously, in terms of the, the exit uh, or, or, or the pivot that we're seeing in the BOJ here, the fact that they're increasing bond purchases in Q1 um, uh, and uh, Kuroda has been very careful in his language, I think has helped keep a lid on uh, asset price moves today. And I do think they're going to defend the 50 basis point ceiling very aggressively for the next few weeks. Next few weeks, um, contented with the reaction. Um, Mark's take on on how the BOJ is probably feeling about all of this. Let's get uh, a, a few other reactions to what we've seen thus far today. Um, our chief US interest rate strategist, Ira Jersey, joins us, uh, as does Bloomberg macro strategist Simon White here in the studio in London. Simon, do you think the BOJ is going to be content with what it got today? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, they certainly like to surprise people at Christmas. They've done that before. When was the last time? It was the late 80s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. They, they, the Christmas Day. <clears throat> so at least they waited till before that this time. But I think it's, um, yeah, they should be happy with the move so far. But I think it's, it's people are obviously focusing on what it means for, for treasuries. Um, and I think as far as treasuries go, this is more of a sentiment move before any actual kind of like real kind of significant change in flows. Because what really drives... Um, Japanese, like the yen and things like that, is capital flows. So they're yep. a big net capital exporter. Um, and I don't think what we've seen today is really going to be enough to significantly change the direction of these flows. I think that's people what people were maybe expecting today. Mm -hmm. But I think this is more just a sentiment move. Um, and I think as far as treasuries go... I would say the rally is probably still intact, at least for the next couple of months. Well, it's a really good thing that we also booked Ira Jersey, the U.S. Chief Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, wh what say you? Um, what did you make of the Treasury non-market reaction, truly? Um, well, yeah, I think you have had a market reaction, and we were starting to, you know, people were talking about it with me yesterday as to whether or not something like this would happen, um, and that's one of the reasons why you saw both the sell-off and also the uh, the. the uh, bear steepening of the yield curve, which of course well, continued so this overnight. Been priced after... over two days, Ira. This is kind of what you're saying. We're already yeah, yeah set pretty for it? much. Yeah, if you think about it, you know, over the last two days in the ten-year yield, we've had basically a twenty basis point sell-off. Um, so, so you've seen yields higher in in that sector, um, and and a significant amount of steepening as as well. Um, I, I think the steepening in particular comes in two two parts. One is just a fear that um, that there is going to be a more broad global developed market rate sell-off. I mean that. Now that you have, you know, the Bank of Japan seeming to be a little bit, I should say, less dovish, but but also, um, uh, you know, maybe modestly hawkish vis-a-vis -vis what uh, expectations may have been before. But then, secondly, there's, you know, we're at year end. There's a lot of people who have a lot of gains in yield curve flatteners, with the yield curve inversion being what it was, and you still have a lot of people who are still in those flattening trades. So I think a lot of this is just position squaring and people getting out of their. Um, get, getting out of their yep. flattener trades. And, and this, that's why you've seen this two-day very significant um, kind of counter trend move in both yields and in the curve. Ira, there's going to be a series of tests. There's going to be a series of kind of moments that are going to be coming up. And what happens in Japan is going to have implications elsewhere, as we've already seen, as you said. We've got Japanese inflation data coming up. Um, do you think the market is going to... When do you think the market is going to have a serious crack at the new upper end of the JGB range. And is that now effectively the determining factor in how global bond markets are going to trade? 
Yeah, well, I, I do think that we'll ultimately get there. And the, the market likes to test the resolve of central banks. And, and I suspect that, you know, in the not too distant future, um, you know, end of the week, perhaps, that, that we'll get back up to that 50 basis point area. Keep in mind, you know, in, in Japan, you've had the, the 10s, 30s yield curve and the 10s, 40s, because the 40-year uh, JGB is, is a little bit more liquid than 30s. But, but, the, but the 10s, uh, 30s curve has steepened quite a lot in, in, mm-hmm. because investors haven't been able to basically sell rates because they knew that, um, that, that uh, the Bank of Japan was going to buy everything in sight at 25 basis points. It was hard to really get short that sector uh, before this announcement. So people were selling the long end. So you saw this mass of um, steepening of, of that yield curve because people do think that ultimately the, the Bank of Japan is going to be a little bit more hawkish. Maybe interest rates won't stay negative um, for, for very long. Um, you know, I keep on hearing a lot of people doubting that, that the Bank of Japan is going to actually increase interest rates, but I think at some point they might actually um, have to do that, even if it's not a lot, right? They can, they can raise interest rates just to, you know, to 25 or 50 basis points. Historically speaking, over the last couple of decades, that would be, be very high. But at the same time, it's, it's, not, um, it's not something that, that people had really been considering seriously. You look at our WIRP function on the terminal, the market certainly thinks that you're going to hike a couple of times. So, Simon, if that happens, is that enough then to pull capital into Japan? And where does it come out of? Like, where's that biggest vulnerability? Well, I think the main kind of partnership here with Japan is, is obviously in the U.S. <clears throat> so that, that's what people are believing that you're going to see um, significant sort of capital outflows from the US. I just don't think it's going to happen in the near term. I think the sort of longer term or medium term drivers of treasuries right now, first of all, you know, I think recession risk is rising. I think um, that could change very quickly next year. So that would create haven demand. But second of all, if you look at basically there was a lot of reserve selling was going on this year. So official reserves. Um, and that's really began to abate. And that, that really, you know, especially like commodity importers such as Japan, um, you know, because commodity prices aren't as high as they, as they were, it's taken some of the pressure off that selling. So I think these slightly more medium term trends for treasuries, I think, are going to be in place right now. Further down the line. Yeah, look, I think I agree with Ira. I think Japan uh, is going to end up having to you know, expand its, um, its ceiling there. It's basically fighting a losing game. So I think at some point the game is up. Uh, I think the Japan is the one that's held out the longest. Um, but they're all kind of been fighting this sort of losing game for so long where you, you, you can't just keep continually to keep prices uh, or sorry policy very loose when you have uh, things like inflation. And now we're in an inflationary world. It's just going to look very different, you know, the next five or 10 years to the last 20 or 30 years. So what skill set do you think the next Bank of Japan governor is going to need? What is what is the job going to be for whoever comes next? Is it going to be inflation fighting? Is it going to be market control in the same way that Corroda has has delivered? I, I'm just wondering, kind of, how different this gig is going to be. I, I think I think for all central bankers, ultimately they're going to have to throw the rule book out the window. I mean, I think they're all generals fighting the last war. Right. You know, like from Powell, Powell has obviously talked a very tough talk so far, but he hasn't yet to be tested. Mm-hmm. Same with any other central banker. They've kind of like modestly moved rates up. Well, obviously, geometrically speaking, they've gone up a lot, but kind of where they've been before, not that much. And, and right now, they've not really faced super weak economies. Um, obviously, Bank of Japan have been the one that have held out last. So they're going to face the same challenges at some point, and perhaps their challenges are going to be even more yeah, aggressive and- because they've kept the spring down yep. for much longer. 
Does Simon always bum us out like this? Is that a yes? <laughs> He's a macro strategist. So I think it, I think it goes job, with, it goes right? with the territory. I think yeah, wherever no, the enough. wherever the best trade is, wherever uh, the best trade is. <laughs> um, hey, Ira, I'm curious as to the um, what maybe Powell, what kind of lesson other central bankers could take from Corona. Like I was just so <laughs> impressed that he surprised everyone and also didn't exact an enormous reaction and massive volatility within the market. It's like, look, forward guidance may not be the way to go. <laughs> Well, you know, there's there's this issue that I think that a lot of central banks have, which is how much communication is too much communication. And, and the Federal Reserve certainly has been spearheading the idea that, hey, we want to be out and open so that way when we get to a meeting, we don't actually surprise anyone. You know, June was perhaps the closest we've had to a surprise by the central bank in 20 years. Um, you know, so, so there, there is, I think, a certain amount of um, of maybe – maybe benefit of a surprise effect sometimes where, you know, you come out and you say, you know, hey, we're going to do something that the market doesn't expect because we disagree with the market. And, um, you know, like like the, our other guests just mentioned, we're in a situation where, like, most central banks haven't really been tested. Um, the, you know, we, we've been bouncing at 25 basis points in 10-year uh, Japanese government bonds, and and that just meant that the Bank of Japan had to buy more and more and more. And, and eventually that becomes untenable in an environment where you don't necessarily need to have all of that um, uh, all of that liquidity in the in the economy. So, um, so I think Kuroda was kind of forced by the market to to do this because um, he was forced to to buy you know a whole boatload of the uh, uh, of the JGB market. Meanwhile, you know Powell will probably ultimately be tested, um, and and the rest of the Fed when um, you know things like the economy is falling is is weakening significantly, but you still have inflation that's. Um, a little bit above the Fed's comfort level, and will you know who will blink first? Right? Will it ultimately be the economy, the bond market, or or the Fed? And, and uh, you know, so yep. so that is an open question that is probably going to have to be answered in, in sometime in 2023. Simon, the big picture out of all of this, to my mind, is that the dollar's done. The, the dollar is going to, and we were talking to UBS just a few minutes ago about this. The the dollar is probably peaked or is cl- is close to peaking and then you're going to have a multi-year phase where the dollar is going to decline and i'm wondering how much market adjustment is going to be required as we go through that so i fully agree <clears throat> with that i think the dollar has clearly peaked for now um, and i think there were certain indicators you could look at a few months ago we were telling that the real yield curve is one of the best single leading indicators yep. for the dollar so i think it will continue to roll over uh, i don't know about the speed with which yep. it will fall, um, but I totally agree with the trend. But one thing that's interesting, a lot of people, for instance, will tell you that a recession, you'll always get the dollar rallying in a recession. If you actually look at it, it's kind of like 50-50. Um, so if you get recession, don't necessarily expect the dollar to rally. So we'll probably get a recession next year. The smile doesn't work. The smile doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. So right. the, the, the Simon frowns. It's a frown. It's a problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm, doing a, I'm doing a handstand, exactly. Um, hey, guys, really appreciate the conversation. That was the perfect way uh, to set up what happened with the BOJ today. Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist, and Simon White, a really positive, always happy Bloomberg Macro Strategist. We appreciate that. Um, so, Guy, what's going to be tomorrow? 
I, I don't know. I, yesterday it was, what was it, Musk it was yesterday yeah. and Twitter and today it's the BOJ. I, I was thinking this week was going to be quiet and there'll be no news. Thank God there's news. People like us that have to do with three hours of programming, we're like, bring on the news. What's it going to be now? Like, what are we, we not expecting? We are, we are in the volatility business, as somebody put it to us a little bit earlier on. So right. yes, if somebody could arrange for some news tomorrow, that would like be it. great. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. So yesterday was also an historic day for the European Union. The commission uh, got together and they found a €180 price cap for natural gas. There are a lot of problems. None the least is if you don't have demand destruction along with a price cap, is it really going to work? There are lots of conditions that go around it. Prices have to be that high for three days. There also has to be a 35 euro spread uh, between European natural gas prices and other global natural gas prices, aka Asia. So there are some things. However, if you applied this to the last year, this would have been triggered about 40 days. And what would have been the savings for the European Union? Lots of questions, not a lot of concrete answers. Uh, Luckily, earlier on our show, Maria today caught up with EU Energy Commissioner Kadri Simpson, uh, and they spoke about this. And, and they started off on the trigger and what the criteria is to trigger that cap. We don't have to trigger this cap if our markets will not hit those excessive prices that we witnessed uh, this year. And indeed, Commission was very clear when we presented our proposal that our aim is not to opt for regulated prices and suspend markets as such, but we have to take care uh, of our consumers and avoid the wartime premiums or marked up prices compared to the other LNG hubs. And we will do so. Uh, the mechanism will be ready um, if the prices are above 180 euros. And on top of that, there has to be spread at least 35 euros. So if other global hubs will also fitness similar extremely high prices at the LNG markets, then we will not trigger this mechanism. And of course, you make it clear there's a double trigger to this, and that's important uh, to clarify here. It's not just a 180, but it's also the spread over the LNG. But Commissioner, you know that there has been criticism that any cap would send the wrong signal to the market. It would show that Europe is not competitive. This is a fierce market, and China is not even fully open. Do you worry, perhaps, that overall this could backfire on the European Union? We always knew that uh, this kind of mechanism will have its benefits, but of course it comes with risks. We have never done something like that. And to avoid um, possible unwanted consequences, we also set into the legislation several safeguards. One of those is that our agencies who are monitoring the situation on the security of supply on gas markets and also our agency ESMA who monitors what is happening in financial markets, they will give us before this mechanism will be operational. That was the Energy Commissioner, Cathy Simpson, speaking to Maria Tadeo a little bit earlier on today. I still am at the point where I'm not completely convinced that everybody's got their arms around exactly how this is going to work and what the impact of it is all going to be. However, there are some people who are kind of significantly further ahead in in understanding this process. One of those, of course, is Bloomberg's Rachel Morrison, who joins us on the line. Rachel, I listened to that whole interview with the Energy Commissioner, 
And I'm still not 100% sure that when push comes to shove, this is going to deliver the price stability that the EU is looking for. Yes, when you delve into some of the detail, it does look a little bit less strong, perhaps is the right word, than the initial idea of a cap at a certain level for prices. You know, there's different conditions, both of which have to be met. The EU can um, get rid of the whole measure if it looks like demand is rising too much. So because there are quite a few caveats, it is hard to tell how significant, the ca- how strong the cap is, how significant it is, and whether it will be used. And even the commissioner, not in that interview, but previously had said that they don't expect that they will have to use it, which does seem strange because if we look at last year, we see that it would have been used on, mm-hmm. we calculated, more than 40 days. So I agree, it is quite difficult to see that this ticks all of the boxes that the Commission was setting out to try to um, achieve with the measure. Rachel, so if this would have been triggered 40 days uh, last this year, what would have been the net effect of it? Okay, it was triggered, and then what? Like, Do we know how much Europe would have saved at that point? Well, I think the key question is whether people stop trading or, and, you know, and keep just trading at that capped level or whether they just move to the brokered markets, to the over-the-counter markets and continue trading at higher prices. So it may be that consumers continue to feel the effect of the high prices despite the cap. We don't know what will happen yet. And that's one of the issues that I don't think has been addressed properly, what they will do if everybody just moves off the exchanges yeah. where the cap is. That sounds that's so such a critical yeah, question. It seems like a really because, big problem. Because this is this is a huge this has the potential to be a huge part of the market. The OTC market is not covered by this cap. So presumably Rachel if there was a scarcity of supply that is what everybody would do and this whole situation would fragment is something even more chaotic than we already find ourselves with. Yeah, I think it depends on what you, you know, your view of markets, how much you trust markets to find a price and a price signal. So when we got near those record levels, I think it was 342 euros in August for European gas. If you believe in markets, you say that was the market pricing in a surprise total cutoff in supplies from Russia. But the EU views that as speculation and there were no fundamental drivers they could see for that price rise. So... I suppose if you view it like the EU, you say that you're taking away that ability for people to artificially push up a price which isn't fundamentally supported. But if you believe in markets, you say, well, that's scarcity pricing. That's the market finding the level but not having mm-hmm. those supplies. And it did come back down after that. So the market was working. And, and, and so nonetheless, it, it is hard to see. Rachel, none of this addresses the demand part and demand uh, reduction and caps. Yes, um, there was a note from Goldman Sachs today saying that if demand reduction targets weren't made mandatory, it it could potentially increase consumption because you're keeping prices artificially low. The EU does have a sort of part to this that means that if consumption rises above 10 or 15 percent, they can they can scrap the cap. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And even 9% is still quite a lot. It's, you know, their, their targets are quite high for that to happen. Rachel, as ever, thank you for updating us. We appreciate it. Bluebook's Rachel Morrison. This is Bluebook.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. I'm Alex Steele here in New York and Guy Johnson's over in London. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Quick check-in here on U.S. markets. We're actually trying to stage a rally here. Uh, S&P up by about one-tenth of one percent. The Dow's up three-tenths of one percent. Volume's light, but not as bad as yesterday. Definitely not as bad as I think it's going to be on Friday. Um, Bonds still on offer. You have yields up by about nine basis points on the back end. Individually, though, take a look at what's happening in the S&P. One of the worst performing stocks is General Mills. And I find that this is interesting because it falls by the most since May. Um, basically, analysts are worried about volume declines. They're still happening, um, and their company is able to raise prices, but not enough to offset the volume declines. Also, their pet business came in at zero. That's weird. We were expecting about sales to jump 13%. And usually, if there's any kind of economic hardship, pets are the last thing to go. Um, so it was a much weaker than expected pet segment, and that's weighing on the stock down by about four percentage points. One of the other worst performing stocks, wait for it, is Tesla. That stock down 5%. Um, somehow, Elon Musk guy has not resigned. I have not seen that headline cross the terminal that he had decided to take the Twitter poll seriously from yesterday. Well, no, there is other reporting. This is a this is a fairly fast-moving situation. Um, is it? Or is it like a slow-moving car wreck? It's kind of both at the same time. I, I, I think this is playing out quite quickly, actually. I, I think the whole thing is, is I... If if you want to crash a car into a wall, maybe this is how you should you should think about it, um, because certainly the 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 kind of the shifts and the changes at Twitter have been unbelievable to watch. Some may call it crashing it, it into a wall. Others may feel that maybe you're just sort of breaking it down to rebuild it. Anyway. Maybe. Depending on your perspective, you've got to get somebody to rebuild it, though. And that is the big exactly. thing, basically, that we're building on here. So CNBC, I think, our good friends and colleagues at CNBC, David Faber over there, I think was reporting a few minutes ago uh, that uh, Musk is actively now searching for a new Twitter CEO. Um, Ed Ludlow joining us to update us on this. Ed, what do you make? What, what Just kind of give us the lowdown of the last few minutes. So Musk has replied to that particular report with two cry laughing emojis this is the language we speak now when we go on air um make make of that what you will you know either he's what do you make of it you know uh musk said prior to the transaction close that he would only be in ceo temporarily or he'd lead the company temporarily until the company was sort of standing on its own two feet and in safe hands he also has always said that he was stay a ceo until he finds the right person the idea that he was looking is not that surprising. Mm-hmm. I think that right now, like, this is classic, whether you're talking about SpaceX or Tesla or, in this case, Twitter, it's the lack of any sort of serious grown-up-in-the-room engagement or comment from the company itself. And I have to remind our, our audience around the world that, you know, like Tesla, Twitter disbanded its press team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has an IR team, I'm sure, but like Tesla, that team... Is not really effective in communicating. I thought to he was the IR, the investor relations Shut team. Up. Investor relations team. So um, make so of that what you will. I also heard overnight that uh, so the Twitter poll came out. The majority of 17 million users said that Elon Musk should go, and then he comes back and he says, "You know what? I'm just going to do this poll again for verified bots, kind of, or, or verified accounts. I should well, say to avoid the bots. Is, yeah. that, is that true? What does that so, tell you? So he was replying to another user who said, if you looked at the number of people or accounts that cast a vote versus the number that liked it." The concern is that actually bots may have been a big factor in a sort of coordinated voting scheme and so therefore not be a fair result 
and Musk replied saying, quote, interesting. Um, but Musk has also kind of celebrated more than once in the last couple of weeks that actually, according to their data, the number of bots, the pervasiveness on bots on the, on the platform has really come down. They've done a really good job of, of tracking yeah. it. So again, you know, I've been saying this to John, to Guy on TV all day. I've asked Elon Musk directly, hey, do you plan to go through with this? And he's not replied. And, you know, whether he replies or not, I'm not saying I expect him to, but that's all we can do. You know, are you going to go through with this? I think, you know, it's not surprising that he's looking for a replacement, given what he said okay. in the past. But yeah. Well, okay, let's see that we believe David's reporting. Yeah. And the, the crying emojis can be dismissed for the moment. Who, what, are the names changing? Who are people talking about as potentially being the right person to be able to manage this with what I assume is going to be quite a high degree of oversight from Elon himself? This is a question. There's a Fox Business report out in the last hour or so that one of the uh, founders of Palantir, Joe Lunsdale, is in active consideration. This is mm. Fox Biz citing unnamed bankers close to Musk. Interesting kind of former Silicon Valley name, venture capitalist, yep. background in software AI could be interesting remember musk has talked about not wanting a kind of legacy ceo type but a technologist you know he ridiculed well he did ridicule former t-mobile ceo john leger who tweeted and volunteering himself right remember he just said no i actually so, don't hate that idea by the way for john leger or a technologist no for for john ledger it's like it's like he, he's just as much as a character i can see why elon musk would be no but look what he did to t-mobile and his character and like his right. stick really worked for him Two, two things real quick, Alex, some headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal uh, from Bloomberg that Elon Musk is seeking a new Twitter CEO, according to a source. And according to this Bloomberg source, Musk's search for the new Twitter CEO could be drawn out. <gasps> Shocker. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'll tell you guys some of my reporting, right? I, I've spoken to investors in the new private Twitter entity today, and particularly about what kind of CEO. And what these investors say to me is actually they'd love a John Legere type. They actually really would. Um, and Musk, you know, he did sort of tease John Legere and say, no, you know, single answer, no, we're not interested in you being CEO of Twitter. But he did later follow up and say he had a lot of respect for him. It's just that John wasn't the type of person he was looking for. Actually, when I speak to investors, they're like, we really wish Elon would just kind of get out of his own way and acknowledge this is exactly the type of person that, that we're looking for, because, you know, they're impressed with what he did at T-Mobile. What does drawn out mean, do you think? I think drawn out means that, um, the, the, well... He, I doesn't, mean, he doesn't have a candidate right now. Right. But also this is, let's go back to like, Elon Musk clearly is always going to have some kind of influence at Twitter whilst it's a private yep. entity owned by him, right? Like he did this, he took Twitter private, you'll remember, because he said that he wanted to make big technological changes to the platform that he felt could only be made in a private company, not a public company. Um, he is the most active and and sort of well-followed user so my drawn out to me seems like a not just finding the right person but b musk being able to say i'm done with this project so which in musk terms is not something he does he stays very hands-on in the sort of product look at tesla and at spacex what does musk get out of doing all of this via twitter and having journalists like us talk about it all the time in this particular instance what does he get out of it? Yeah, I mean, I can understand like if he if if things were going really badly and he wanted to kind of get the price lowered when he was buying it. But now, like, what 
What is it? Because all this makes well, me want to do is not use Twitter. This is a fantastic question, but I always go at it from the investor and potential investor's point of view. That I think there was a report from the journal, was it last week, that he's trying to raise further equity part investment from partners at the same, at the same $54 dollar 20 cents. So, so are they incentivized to do this? Uh, no, you know that there. You know, I think I can say with confidence the sources and investors I've spoken to, they do wish this was a bit more sort of calmer and more normal and mainstream than it currently is. Then I go back to Guy and you on the debt, right, Alex? Mm-hmm. They're still trying to take this debt that was part of the um, uh, original financing package. It was fronted by the banks. Mm-hmm. It was put into escrow and transferred to the existing Twitter shareholders. Those banks have still got to make a decision to either go cap in hand to Wall Street and asset managers and say, guys, we really need you to buy up this debt from us. Or they just take a loss on it. So if it's the investors or the bankers, I think that everyone's just trying to get this situation a bit more normalized because there's still uh, investment at stake. There's still a financial or fiduciary relationship between Musk and a large party of people. I think politics is playing a part in this. It is interesting. Um, you know, Musk has said pretty consistently that if everyone on the far left and everyone on the far right of Twitter's user base is angry at him, then the net result is probably positive. In yeah. other words, he doesn't want it to be sort of home of the far left. I would just point to his Twitter uh, comments and behavior in the last four days. You know, he's replied to tweets where people keep pointing out that the mainstream media is very now left-wing compared to what it used to be or, mm-hmm. or has moved further to the left. So he, he definitely brings up the conversation. Um, I'll remind you that not just in the context of Twitter, but that DC has tried to control Musk in the past, you know, the SEC's action against him in the Tesla take private deal um, and, and not to a great success. But, so, but, yeah. But isn't, isn't the people who buy his cars... Are- Aren't they more left-leaning? Yes. And there is some <laughs> anecdotal evidence that, that actually the Tesla brand has been impacted. And, you know, you don't have to go any further than Gary Black, a sort of well-followed Tesla fan and bull on, on Twitter who keeps saying, please stop, Elon, because I do worry about the equity story being caught up on Tesla with brand damage, brand uh, I mean, the Tesla story, guys, we haven't even got into it. I think we're down almost 6% yeah, now. Yeah, no, I was about to yeah, go there, it's actually. It's getting, uh, this is getting smacked around now properly. So I just want to read you one thing really quick because I don't know how much time we have left. But there was another further uh, price, uh, uh, sorry, target price cut by Mizuho this morning. Um, and there was just a single line in the paragraph that says, Twitter deleveraging overhang. Elon sold Tesla shares 22 million in December, 20 million in November. So whether you stick to the pure finance story, which is the the, the overhang of Elon's uh, shares, or you go back yesterday to Oppenheimer, who cut price targets, and I know the sell siders are behind on price targets versus where we're trading, but they're all saying, actually, the Twitter story and Tesla, they're now interlinked. They keep saying that, yeah. and it's hard to get away from that. But this is, we're at a November 2020 low, but... Like, you know, three straight days of declines. We're down over the course of three sessions. Sorry, I'm just using my Bloomberg terminal, which is loading. We're down 10% in three sessions. You know, this is significant selling, isn't it? It is. And and you talk about that link, which I think is hugely important, because Musk is, Musk is so many people, is the reason why you buy a Tesla. He is the marketing guy. He is the big vision guy. I am changing... At the same time, when you have more competition in that market, too, which I also find interesting. Yeah. Yes. But he has always been. He he was at the vanguard of all of this. Um, 
he was there to create. He has created. I, I remember. So I had the honor a, a, a long time ago of speaking to Elon Musk when he was first getting going, and and he was like, "I want to change the world, and I want to change German engineering, and I want to get these guys." He's done that, but he has still always been the. You, you, they are synonymous. He and 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 Tesla are synonymous, and if you start to dilute that or change that relationship, I don't think I think it's really hard to value Tesla because you can't value it as a normal car company. Can you value it as a Mercedes Benz? Can if if you change that relationship, then then I think the whole valuation model becomes very complicated, and I think that is the process that we're now going through right now. It is it is going to be. The, the relationship is going to become different and maybe less positive. And I, and I don't know where that leaves leaves Tesla. And I don't think the sell-side analysts know either. I don't think anybody knows. Well, I just quickly shout that if you go through Tesla's regulatory filings, especially the annuals, they all reference that the company's fate is directly tied to that of Elon Musk. And yeah. that if he were to leave, then the company could be negatively impacted. I know that's kind of in the boilerplate language, but that's what we're talking about. Right. Key and all, it's a, it's key a key man, man risk. risk times like 100, basically. But the point I was trying to make about the cars is that, you know, Musk is synonymous with Tesla, but they're not the only game in town anymore. So if I'm too freaked out about what Musk is doing to Twitter, why can't I just go to a different EV company? I, I understand it's not a Tesla, but like, there are other options now. Yeah, and then, you know, their, their faith goes into, you know, the idea that Tesla's technology is better or that the consumer just enjoys the Tesla vehicle uh, more. What I would say is that, you know, the Tesla's still running and humming and, and it's doing well uh, in it, with a troubled yep, macro yep. picture. So I, I, don't, yeah. I think the operationally is the issue. It's the valuation issue. Yeah. It's the shares that it's the shares under pressure issue, which I think is kind of what's going on here. I think I think Twitter is a sorry, Tesla is a car company. Sorry, um, it is is now fairly well solidified. But Tesla as an investment case is where I think the ambiguity is to be found. And I think that's where yeah. life gets Tough. very, very difficult. Ironically, I think you've got to go and catch a train, don't you? I do. Uh, Aww, now I'm back bye. in London. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's experiencing UK trains oh, once again. Got it. <clears throat> which, is, which is a fun experience at the moment. Um, anyway, um, we need to carry on the conversation. What are we going to do in the next block? Um, we, we need to think of watch oh watch we talked to the swatch uh, the, the guy was amazing was early really awesome. we talked to nick hayek who who runs swatch um and they've had the whole moon watch thing this year uh the kind of the collaboration between swatch and omega which has been phenomenal and talking of technology i the, the whole kind of bernard arnault being the world's richest man it, it, i think it's a fascinating phenomenon i this is europe's tech mm -hmm. this is european valuations that are absolutely eye-watering and and kind of it's such an interesting story, I think, that's going to be worth exploring throughout next year. Anyway, we'll hear from him next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening uh, to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So Bloomberg Business Week today published its 50 Most Influential People of 2022. On the list, Nick Hayek. Nick Hayek is the CEO of the Swatch Group. It doesn't just, of course, own Swatch. It owns a whole multitude uh, of brands, Harry Wilson, uh, Omega, etc., etc. Now, the reason why he is on the list is the incredible impact that, that a fairly simple innovation had this year. They, they at Swatch basically combined the Omega Speedmaster with a Swatch to create the Moon Watch. And demand for this product was off the Richter scale. 
and as a result of which kind of changed the the whole kind of uh, zeitgeist, the, the whole vibe around Swatch and made it really hot again. Anyway, we, we managed to, Alex and I, catch up with uh, Nick Hike a little bit earlier and we started by talking about whether or not he was surprised, just the kind of the impact that this decision to combine these two brands and create this Moonwatch had actually had. Yes, and not only when we launched it, huh? it's not a limited edition. It's up to today, nine months later, uh, the people are queuing. Look, we did everything to make it happen. That's why we kept everything secret. That was a challenge, you know, to produce this in our factories. Of course, we knew this is a bomb. This is something unexpected. And there will be success at the end of the day. But that it was such an overwhelming success, yes, that was a surprise. Uh, Nick, is there going to be a moon swatch for next year, like a big surprise we can expect too? You have already bought your moon swatch this year? Uh, yeah, well, Guy's getting it for me for Christmas, so I haven't actually received it yet. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you see, then you have to go on on 2023. Think a little bit more uh, long term. I know in, the, in, in business in the U.S., you only think uh, about three months, but 2023 will continue. The, the moon swatch is so hot that we will continue. But again, uh, you know, the positive provocation and joy of life of swatch is always permitting us to bring new things and surprising things into the market. Were you worried that you were going to undermine the other side of the equation, the other side of the fence, the Omega side of the fence? In the contrary, because we tell the, the young people everywhere in the world and everybody who doesn't know the story of Omega, oh my God, what an icon uh, it has been on the moon. You have to tell this story. And there are many stories that can be told. So Omega increased the sales after that we launched it. It's the contrary. The young people are fascinated. They want to know what is happening. And Swatch was the perfect means to do it. Swatch was always a communicator and brought new people to buy uh, watches. It was like this in the past, and it will be like this in the future. Nick, if we get into a recession next year for 2023, what happens to the business? What are you looking at? 2023? Yeah. You know, I'm not in the weather forecast, but I see there are so many opportunities out there that we can only have positive surprises as long as we stick to what we are doing and the world should look what we are doing. We have our production bases in Switzerland. We have our factories in Switzerland. We have our research and development in Switzerland, even for a product that only costs $260. And as long that you have these bases, an industrial base, and you let not yourself be influenced by financial analysts and you do the contrary of what they are saying, then there is a lot of success waiting for you in 2023. Nick, what do you think about Bernard Arnault being the richest man on earth? I don't know him. Okay. <laughs> what should I think about the richest man? What, what's, what kind of value is to be the richest man on the world? There's no value in it. You have to I, I asked the, the, ask the question. I asked the question because what he has demonstrated is the value that you can generate from brands like he owns and like you own. And I'm just wondering kind of how you think about that value and how you think about the ongoing journey that those brands are going to produce, how much further there is still to go with these brands. Yeah, as I said, the potential is huge. You have billions of people in the world and we showed it with the Moonswatch. You have young people, aspiring people that don't want to be excluded. You know, we all talk about exclusive, luxury, but all these people want to have 
very exclusive, fine products, not commodities, not only consumer electronics products. They want fine uh, produced products. And there are billions out there. And they're just waiting that you go and offer them something that brings joy of life and positive provocation, especially after COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, we all during COVID have been blocked at home. We could not say nothing if you yeah. say something against it. So here there is the huge potential. And being rich at the end of the day is not the objective. You can become very rich at the end of the day, but this is not the objective. What is the objective? is to bring something that adds value to the lives of the people through joy of life and through a positive provocation that makes move yeah. the people. It, it seems, Nick, though, what Guy was getting at what was also the idea that uh, a luxury CEO is the richest person in the world and that luxury has been so hot for all the reasons that you just said. Why do we think that luxury can stay hot if everyone has to pay higher electricity bills and hunker down in a recession? But you know, you talk again about luxury. You have, on the other hand, I think you have the Walmart people and family who are very rich people. And Walmart is doing products for everybody. And so there is space for everybody. And when you talk about luxury products, I would not talk about luxury. Let's talk about exclusive product that create a desire to the people, that are emotional for the people. And it has nothing to do with the price. You see it in our example. We did not a limited edition. It costs $260. It's really accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's yep. what it is about. And the luxury industry must be careful. If you always go higher in prices, you exclude more and more people. So your exclusivity is excluding people. You only serve an elite of people, and that's not what the future is. You have to seduce the mass of people, the middle class, the entry class, not just the rich people or the small elite that is out there. That was Nick Hayek, uh, Swatch Watch president, uh, speaking with us. So um, which moon swatch did you get me? Uh, I, I can't tell you. I, oh, Christmas has got to be about it, surprises. It's a surprise. I mean, you didn't take the bait on that one. Yeah, that was really, uh, that's really sad. Um, I got you the Mars it. one. But anyway, we'll see if it gets there in time. Um, okay, hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back with you tomorrow. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB, Digital Radio. I'm Alex, and for Guy, have a good night. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>